This talk is offered by Ordinary Minds Zen teacher Andrew Tutel. Andrew is an Australian Dharma heir of Barry Majid and is dedicated to extending Barry's vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Find out more at ordinarymind.com.au. Andrew's Zen teachings are made possible by donations from people like you. It's, 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 it's traditional to um, often to start the new year with a, a talk on the practice principles around about the beginning of the year. It's um, the, uh, we chant the practice principles. It's the most common thing that we recite on a regular basis. And, uh, and one of the wonderful things about the practice principles is that there's many different ways we can interpret them. So it brings a nice richness to our practice. And uh, so, yeah, I really encourage you all to, um, you know, make the practice principles your own and personalize them, get your own feeling for them, your own meaning for them. But today I'm going to spend some time talking about um, um, how the practice principles uh, can be integrated into what Joko Beck calls core beliefs and um, I'll talk more about that throughout the talk. Um, the practice principles, of course, inform all our practices and the three core practices are just sitting, um, inquiry practice, which will be sort of developing more this year, and guided meditations, which we've been developing for a few years. Um, and one of the important things in practice um, is, is getting used to this distinction between what Joko Beck calls experiencing and, 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 and then moving to self-reflection. And it's kind of like, uh, in a sense, it's a dimensional quality of our consciousness. Consciousness in human beings is self-consciousness at the same time. So it's almost like if you had a kind of continuum where experiencing on the one end of the continuum versus kind of like um, self-reflection on the other end of the continuum and it's kind of like you can almost think of it often we're kind of like maybe more in the middle or sometimes more towards the the self-reflection or sometimes we can even just get disconnected and lost in thoughts or a daydream or some kind of dissociation so the notion on the left hand side of the continuum of experiencing is kind of like the, this idea of being fully what we're experiencing without any division when we move to self-reflection, we kind of like uh, the self divides into a subject and an object. Um, so, for example, when Joko talks about thought labeling, that's when we're stepping back and observing our thoughts and even labeling our thoughts. That's that's the form of self-reflection. And so just throughout the daily course of our life, we're always kind of like subtly shifting and moving along that continuum all the time. And in fact, in meditation practice, if you can experience experiencing at a kind of 100% level, that's very rare. It doesn't happen very often and it's quite powerful. Most of the time, if you're experiencing about 90 to 80% of your, of the self, that's, that's good. But so continue to clarify that and we ask questions about that. So all our awareness, all these core practices are awareness practices complemented by self-reflection. 
we have to talk about um, our practice, and the only way we can talk about our practice is to reflect on it. So, um, we can also make a distinction between formal practice and the rest of our life, in a sense. Um, so, just sitting, guided meditations, and sometimes inquiry are formal practices with a beginning and an end. So, we might sit for 40 minutes. We might do a guided meditation for 40 minutes. We might do an inquiry interview for 40 minutes. But in a sense, we want to bring this notion of experiencing and inquiry into our everyday life, into our life. So that living our life becomes our practice, um, life as it is, our teacher. Hence, in a sense, every moment we are practicing, even when we are suffering, or especially when we are suffering. But this year, we've started a reading group uh, and uh, on and we started with selected chapters from Joko Beck's posthumous book, Ordinary Wonder. We started that on Friday, and we'll be meeting every Friday. And it's okay if you, you don't have to attend every Friday, but if you can drop in sometimes, that's really good. Um, and uh, so we've taught, we started this. We started uh, in section two of the um, of the book, and. Um, and that's where she talks about and begins talking about core beliefs. So, um, Joko's use of core beliefs is an example of what we mean by a psychologically minded Zen practice. So, ordinary mind is a psychologically minded Zen practice. So you will not find any discussion of core beliefs in traditional Zen teaching. Um, some Sangha members who have not studied psychology um, are interested in getting to a, a better understanding of what we call psychological practice. So I don't want to give the impression that everyone needs to study psychology or psychotherapy um, to be a good Zen student. Um, so, you know, Joko Beck wasn't a psychologist. Um, I think a lot of what she talks about can be grounded in developmental psychology. And, uh, but for our purposes, we can keep the discussion at a fairly generic level. Um, the ideas are not, are not overly complex. So I think they are quite accessible and useful to everyone, not just to psychologists or psychotherapists. So in this talk, I'm going to discuss the question of how core beliefs relate to the practice principles and to the central question in Buddhism, which is suffering and the ending of suffering. To me, that's the most important task that we're all uh, participating in. So I will start by contextualizing the practice principles in the four noble truths or tasks, which Nearly all of you would be familiar with if you studied some Buddhism. And then I will give a brief introduction to the theory of core beliefs and survival strategies and finish by linking the core beliefs and strategies 
to the metaphor of the self-centered dream and the ending of suffering. <clears throat> so, um, as, as I'm talking, just please rem remember to keep yourself muted and then at the end when we have the discussion, you can unmute yourselves. So the four noble truths or tasks, it is said that the Buddha taught only suffering and the ending of suffering. The famous four noble truths. Life is dukkha. So dukkha, the Pali word, gets, often gets translated as suffering. Two, the cause of suffering is the Pali word tanha, often translated as desire. Three, the ending of suffering is the ending or letting go of desire. And four, there is a path that leads to the ending of suffering called Nirvana, which is the Eightfold Path in Buddhism. Therefore, um, in its approach to philosophy of life, Buddhism is very pragmatic. It tends to be anti-metaphysical. And uh, so by that, I mean that the Buddha often tried to stay away from questions regarding reincarnation and uh, what's the true self and um, what's the, uh, um, um, is the universe one or many and all those kind of questions. He, he wanted to keep the focus on suffering and the ending of suffering. And I think uh, Joko Beck is an exemplary pragmatic teacher. And so pragmatism is more concerned with the question of what works rather than what is the truth. So Dharma is about practice, not about believing in truths. So the criterion to be used, therefore, is not is this statement true, but rather does this practice reduce harmful actions to self and others, for example. This is why the secular Buddhist Stephen Batchelor prefers to call the Four Noble Truths the Fourfold Task. He translates it as dukkha suffering is to be comprehended and embraced. Arising is to be let go of. Ceasing is to be beheld. And the path is to be cultivated. They're all verbs. They're all kind of tasks to be completed, to be done. So our practice principles are also um, framed with the same sort of pragmatic spirit. They are not truths to be believed, but tasks to be completed. So one, caught in the self-centered dream, only suffering. Two, holding to self-centered thoughts, exactly the dream. Three, each moment, life as it is, the only teacher. Four, being just this moment, compassion's way. So the first two practice principles are inviting us to understand and witness how we get caught up in the suffering generated by the self-centered dream and how we perpetuate this suffering by our attachment to self-centered thoughts or desire. The third and fourth principles are indicating the path to the ending of suffering. which is where the notion of experiencing comes in, in Joko Beck's teachings. So in traditional Buddhism, it was taught that tanha, that desire, or attachment to desire, 
as the cause of suffering. One way to understand the self-centered dream, therefore, is it's a metaphor for the activity of becoming attached to our desires. It's very, though, important to understand that the desire at the core of the self-centered dream is for happiness. We don't desire to suffer. But paradoxically, um, this desire for happiness does not lead to the ending of suffering. It rather perpetuates suffering. So why is this the case? The concept of the core belief and its associated survival strategies is one way of helping us to uh, comprehend the origin and perpetuation of psychological suffering. So that's what I'd like to go into now. So core beliefs and survival strategies. Nearly all different approaches to psychotherapy have some version of um, core beliefs and survival strategies. They just vary in the, the way in which they're conceptualized so later this year, we'll, we'll be primarily reading Barry Majid's emphasis on how psychoanalysis can help us to deepen our Zen practice. But we can also look at other therapy models, such as CBT, cognitive behavior therapy, schema therapy, and internal family systems. They all have different ways of conceptualizing the uh, core beliefs and strategies. So also compassion-focused therapy is very similar as well. So core beliefs and survival strategies develop at an early age because the caregiving environment, no matter how loving, cannot possibly meet all the developmental needs of the child all of the time. The child will experience what we now call developmental or relational trauma. No child will escape. The difference lies primarily in the severity of the trauma and the responsiveness of the caregiving environment to understand and support the child when the going gets tough. So when you have a responsive caregiving environment and the, the child has a difficult time, the child's sense of safety and being understood increases the child's resilience. But not every child, of course, gets that kind of understanding. So it's not an equal or level playing field in terms of attachment experiences. So core beliefs arise as a template, like a blueprint or a template of self, others and the world to guide the child's psychological survival and to get its needs met as best as it can. There are many needs, some more basic than others such as food, clothing, and shelter. But we also know that the psychological needs for a safe, trusting, and empathic environment are also critical for development, especially during the crucial first three years when the brain is growing at an exponential rate. And we're talking about universal human needs, no matter what particular culture we may be born into. Um, needs for safety, stability, nurturance and acceptance, needs for autonomy, competence and a sense of identity, for the freedom to express one's needs and emotions, for spontaneity and play, 
and for a world with realistic limits which fosters the emergence of self-control. Psychological health can be defined as the ability to get one's needs met in a healthy way. If the caregiving environment is not able to adequately meet the needs of the growing child, the child has to find a way to adapt, usually in maladaptive ways to get their needs met. When the child experiences psychological injuries to their sense of self or their self-esteem, it needs to make sense out of that. At the center of the core belief is usually a painful effect of some kind, often pain, shame based. Because this is so painful, the child needs to adapt as best as it can to its caregiving environment and therefore develops protective strategies designed to get its needs met and to ensure the painful wound at the core of the belief does not get reopened. So, for example, if the child is persistently ignored and repeatedly criticized, it may develop belief, a belief that I am uninteresting or I am stupid or I will never be good enough, or all three. Um, I'm not quite sure exactly how I picked up my belief, but I've definitely had a core belief for many years of never being good enough, which is why I've got multiple um, degrees to prove how good I am. Okay, so then the child developed strategies formed on the basis of these beliefs. We may, we may strive to do our best to take care of the grown-up's needs, for example, and get some sense of acknowledgement as a reward. Or we might do, develop a strategy of looking after the needs of others, doing our best so that people will like us. Or we may overcompensate and strive to be our best at everything. We may become a perfectionist. Over time, these core beliefs and strategies operate automatically outside of our awareness and we carry them into our adult lives. So, uh, Joko, for example, Joko tells the following story in her book, Ordinary Wonder. I'll just read it at you to give you another sense of all of that. So she says, um, I once knew a little boy who had a difficult and punishing father. This father was very strict. He yelled a lot and occasionally he hit his son. Now, naturally, this little kid had to do something to survive. He tried yelling back. That didn't work at all. He got physically punished if he did that. He tried ignoring his father. That didn't work. He tried agreeing. That didn't always work. Eventually, he found that the survival strategy that worked best was to be very quiet and docile. He became a sweet little boy who was almost invisible. That didn't work perfectly, but for whatever reason, it worked best, and he was able to occasionally get a little peace. After a while, the boy began to unconsciously respond to everything in his life with the same strategy. If something happened that he didn't like, he would shrink from it and try to disappear. The strategy became automated, and as he grew into a young man, he used it in just about every situation. It might have been a very poor strategy for some situations and a great strategy for others, but it didn't matter. It was now his habit. 
And more than that, it was his basic strategy. He no longer had any choice. Whatever difficulties entered his life, he stepped back and tried to become invisible. And she, she goes on a bit longer, but I'll stop there. Um, so that's in the book on page 35 to 36. So as we carry these beliefs and strategies uh, into our adult lives, we then experience situational triggers and emotional reactions. So our core beliefs, which are operating outside of our awareness, get triggered and activated. So for example, uh, if I failed an exam or if a teacher was critical of me, that might trigger my core belief that I'm never good enough and that would be maybe spin into an emotional reaction of some kind. So this emotional reaction then creates a kind of self-state. Um, so in the same way that we can start to recognize our core beliefs as traits that have continuity over time, we can start to recognize states which come and go with variations in frequency and intensity. One of the ways you can sort of um, have some sense of progress in practice, if I can use that word, um, is the the reduction in the frequency and intensity of reactive states. So hopefully after you've been practicing for a few years, you notice that. Um, so often when triggered, we may experience a vulnerable childlike state. Uh, so for example, we may blush and feel ashamed or, or we might fly into a temper tantrum. When we are activated, we have some kind of reaction. And, uh, and then this often triggers a self-state and one of our strategies. Um, so when this happens, our normal sort of healthy adult part of the self is literally hijacked uh, by the more immature part of the self. And uh, these states or parts, as they are sometimes called, tend to parallel our flight, um, fight or freeze responses that are wired into our neurobiology. So we may react with anger if we, if we kind of like tend towards fighting or we, we may withdraw and go very quiet to the point of disappearing if we tend to go into a flight mode or a freeze mode. And that all varies depending on the situation. So there are times when I, I may get angry, but there have been times when I've kind of like frozen and gone really quiet. Now, I want to talk about the self, how we relate this to the self-centered dream that we talked about in the practice principles. How does all this fit with the practice principles? So let's start with the first truth. Life is suffering. Suffering is the word commonly used to translate dukkha. But dukkha is all-pervasive. It's much more extensive than suffering. I mean, the Buddha recognizes we can experience happiness in life when we, meet, when we get our desires met but the happiness doesn't last. So that's also part of dukkha. So in a way, we could say that life is dukkha. Um, our life, life is impermanent. Impermanence is dukkha. All conditioned things are dukkha. All conditions by, def by definition begin and end. The world of samsara is another word for suffering, the world of suffering. In early Buddhism, the purpose of practice was to become free of the wheel of existence, the world of suffering through the achievement of nirvana. 
In early Buddhism, this was achieved through extinguishing desire, hence ultimately through no longer returning, no longer being born. In those days, in early Buddhism, reincarnation was not something to be celebrated. It was something to get off. So, um, but this understanding changed in Mahayana Buddhism, which asserts that samsara is nirvana, and life itself is the Dharma. How can this be so? So the first noble truth or task is simply to become aware of how we suffer, to comprehend or understand it and embrace it. The second and third noble truth or task is to see clearly how suffering arises and ceases. We, we do this not by trying to control desire, not by repressing desire or by giving in to desire, but by simply becoming aware of desire and our tendency to attach or cling to our desires. By developing our awareness of desire, we are gradually freeing ourselves from tendencies to form an attachment to our desires. We could say that the activity of the self-centered dream is simply the activity of attachment to our desires, which are invariably, for the most part, self-centered. Hence, from the point of view of the practice principles, we can say there is a cause of suffering and we call it the self-centered dream. So we all come to practice with the desire to be happy. After all, doesn't the Buddha promise the ending of suffering? The separate self grows around the desire to end suffering. However, the problem is the desire to end suffering is founded upon an illusion. And that illusion is that my desire to end or avoid suffering can be achieved. Self-centered dream is the illusion that I have the power to control what I experience in order to end or avoid suffering. And we can go to great lengths to do that. And, 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 and sometimes certain practices can maybe achieve very positive states for very long periods of time. But ultimately, that all comes to an end. Because everything is conditioned. Everything has a beginning and an ending. So, as we have seen in the discussion about core beliefs, the separate self comes into being by trying its best to survive and limit the suffering it has already experienced. So the means of avoiding suffering, the self-centered dream, continues to perpetuate suffering. Holding to self-centered thoughts is a description of, a, of desire, or rather our attachment to desire. This is a key distinction. We need to make a distinction between desire and attachment to desire. So attachment works both as a form of grasping or holding, I desire this state to continue, or as a form of aversion, I desire this state to cease. It's the attachment to the fantasy of control that perpetuates the self-centered dream. The fantasy that life can be made to conform to my requirements of how I wish it to be. Therefore, we are continually adding to our suffering by the illusion that we can avoid suffering. Therefore, we need to let go of our desire to avoid suffering. As Barry Majid says, the core of our practice and of our life 
is how we face, understand, and meet the fact of suffering. Suffering is not an optional or controllable or removable part of life. It is intrinsic to what life is all about. Life is suffering. However, life is also nirvana. How can this be? So the second truth or task is becoming aware of the cause of suffering, which is the attachment to desire, which we express in the second line of the practice principles with the metaphor holding to self-centered thoughts. So what is desire? In samsara, our lives are based on desires. We chase after happiness. We want satisfaction. So we pursue our desires. We run after things we want and away from things we dislike. Sometimes we succeed and we are happy. Sometimes we fail and we are unhappy. This constant up and down is samsara. It's a quote from Okamura, Japanese Western Zen teacher. However, we can simply become aware of desire without attachment to the desire. In this way, desire can be let go of. And this is the middle path. Remember, uh, when the Buddha was a young man, he had, he, all his desires were satisfied. That's the metaphor. Then he did all his renunciations in his attempt to get rid of desire. But that didn't work neither. So the middle path, the middle way between attachment to desire, the repression of desire, and the repression of desire, both two sides of the same coin is to become aware of and let go of our attachment to desires. So desire can manifest as thoughts. I want this, I don't want that. After all, we have all been learning Buddhism most of our lives, even as a child, without being aware of it. I may have desired a Christmas present that never arrived. Somehow, I learned I needed to let go of attachment to that desire. I may have desired my team to win, I had to learn to let go of my attachment to that desire. I may have desired a young woman when I was in high school. Again, I learned the hard way that I needed to let go of my attachment to that desire. Letting go of attachment to desire allows our desires to be there. It's just that we become more skillful at recognizing them and letting go. So now I can enjoy the football game. I want my team to win, but when they lose, I'm not going to collapse into a depressive state. Holding to self-centered thoughts is another way of saying holding on to desire. When we let go of self-centered thoughts, we let go of self-centered desires. Desire does not expand and grow when it is let go. Rather, it withers and dies. It is precisely by letting go of desire that desire ceases. That means that what was perpetuating the desire, what was keeping it from fading away, was the very fact of holding on to it trying to control it. Holding on is synonymous with trying to control. The self-centered dream is the dream of control. The self-centered dream is the dream of exercising our will to control what happens in our life. Remember, we all start off as infants, being at the center of the universe. We dream of controlling everything. When I'm hungry, I desire to be fed immediately. As we grow older, ownership becomes another way in which we seek control. The desire to exercise control over what happens to us is perhaps the most powerful curative fantasy. Another word for control is expectation. 
To desire something is to project into the future a definite expectation. These definite expectations come from the past. We want something in the future to match something we had in the past. In Joker Beck's first book, Everyday Zen, there is a chapter titled Aspiration and Expectation. Joker says the whole practice of Zen comes out of our aspiration. At the same time, we should practice without any expectation. What is the difference between aspiration and expectation? Joker tells us aspiration is nothing but our own true nature seeking to realize and express itself. Aspiration is always intrinsically satisfying. Expectation, on the other hand, is always unsatisfying because it comes from our little minds, our egos, hence the perpetuation of suffering. So the main hook that we grab onto is the promise of the ending of suffering. However, the ending of suffering paradoxically involves letting go of the desire to end suffering by trying to control it. Or as Barry says, the end of suffering that we realize we can achieve through practice turns out to be an end of separation from suffering or an ending of the attachment to the desire to avoid suffering. It is the desire to end suffering that we can let go of. It is the desire to end suffering that comes to an end when we realize and embrace the fact that life is suffering, meaning conditioned. All conditioned phenomena are impermanent, and the more we strive to hold on, the worse it gets. However, we can still allow the desire to end suffering to arise, while at the same time, we change our way of going about it. In the end, it is the acceptance of suffering, the recognition of suffering, the full realization of suffering that finally succeeds in ending suffering. What can this mean? We begin the gradual shift from a self-centered orientation to life, which begins in infancy, to what Joker Beck describes as a life-centered approach to life. We surrender to life as it is. We cease the struggle for life to be different than how it is. However, this doesn't mean resignation. We can still form our aspirations, our intentions to practice Zazen and kindness to self and others. But we now allow ourselves to experience the pain of the vulnerable child. We accept and allow others to be who and what they are. We give up our requirements about how other people should be. We give up the fantasy that life must fit our requirements. Rather, we realize our non-separation from life as it is. This then forms the basis of a positive core belief, maybe, the Bodhisattva project of cultivating wisdom and compassion, the life-centered self being open, vulnerable, and compassionate to self and others. This is the self we are cultivating, our Bodhisattva self, that is organized around wisdom and compassion. So in conclusion, we all come to practice with some version of the desire to end suffering. The Four Noble Truths encourage this fantasy. It is the carrot, the reward at the end of the path. The paradox is that by letting go of the desire to end suffering is how we practice the ending of suffering. In letting go of the attachment to desire, we are gradually bringing an end to the separate self, which originates in the desire to end suffering. The end of suffering in Buddhism is called Nirvana. It is not a particular state or condition of our minds, but rather a way of life based on impermanence and egolessness. Nirvana is a way of life based on the unconditional acceptance of the way things are at this present moment. 
This doesn't mean to say we cannot desire things to be other than the way they are in the future. Acceptance is not resignation. We can still practice active hope to bring about social transformation. It is simply a recognition at this moment, things are the way they are. When we awaken to the reality of interdependence and impermanence, we awaken from the dream of the self-centered self. When we live in accordance with this, all of life becomes nirvana. This awakening is called body or enlightenment. It is not a mystical experience, but a shift from a life based on the illusion of the self-centered dream to a life based on no separate self and impermanence. Gradually, over time, practice becomes more and more inseparable from life, till eventually practice becomes life and life becomes practice. Um, really sorry for going on. The, I didn't, didn't realize it was going to take so much time up. So we actually um, we don't have much time left. I'll just go for a few minutes so people can just say a few things now at the end, and then we'll have to finish, unfortunately. Um. Bravo, Andrew. Um, there's a lot in there. Um, it almost seems to make sense. <laughs> Thank you, David. And I. Um, I was doing my best to make sense to myself. I mean, one of the ways I do that is by writing these, these talks. Yeah. Um, so look, I'll, I'll look, I'll send you all, you'll all get a copy of it. Um, if there's anything you want to take up later on, um, any questions or clarifications or comments you want to make, um, feel free to send me an email or something. And so anyone that'd like to, um, Make any other comments before we finish? Thank you, Andrew. Um, yes, that was pretty amazing. Uh, I look forward to receiving and reading it. Uh, Thank you, Kate. Um, okay. Just briefly, a little bit coming back to core beliefs. Yeah. And the use of that in practice slower yeah. your, your voice kept cutting out and my image faded that was great look forward to reading it again yeah so, so you want to just say that again sue um just coming back to the notion of core beliefs and the the use of thought labeling in practice yep you know maybe we could another time go into that a bit more in terms of thought labeling labeling as part of the practice and, um... Yeah, yeah, that's really good. I mean, can I just, I'll just say a couple of things. About, I mean, the way Joko Beck talks about that is that um, for a certain period of time during formal zazen, one can practice thought labeling. She suggests maybe do it for about five minutes or so, and uh, and she just basically just says. Have, you know, just label the thought to yourself, you know, having the thought that um, I don't have enough money in the bank this week. And just you just say to yourself, having the thought, I don't have enough money in the bank this week. Um, look, but over time, like, you know, like if you were doing a dream journal, over time, if you're observing the thoughts and labeling the thoughts, there are certain patterns that come up. You'll tend and you'll tend the, the labeling of the thoughts can give you a little bit of a clue as to what some underlying core beliefs may be. So that's one of the that's one of the ways in which the labeling of thoughts connects to the the core beliefs.